Hello there, and you're very welcome back to the second Ask Me Anything Inside Politics Christmas special podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linhan, still here with me, Harry McGee, Cormac McQuinn, Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray. Of course, we're trying to pretend that we're in here in the office somewhere between Christmas and New Year's Day uh, recording this. But really, we're not. We're still looking forward to Christmas, Jen. I'm on my fourth glass of wine. (laughs) (laughs) It's out. Our secret is out. Gave it away. This is the second (laughs) podcast and we have been sipping some nice libations uh, since the first one. We've had a reasonable selection. Yeah, we've had some Cremant to Bordeaux, courtesy of Miss Bray. We've courtesy had of some, Tesco. What was that, what was that stuff that you... Um, uh, a pétillon naturel. Anyway, let's get back into it as, soon as, uh, as quickly as we can. Just I think it would be wise. A bottles of Bookfast over there, by the way, <laughs> later on. Thanks, Harry. <laughs> Harry always drags down the tone. Our first question is from Michael Wickham Moriarty. Happy Christmas to all the Inside Politics team. Uh, This is Michael Wickham Moriarty, based in Edinburgh. My question to the panel is about political dynasties in Irish politics. Um, About 12 years ago, a lot of the top posts in Irish politics were occupied by people who were the children of former TDs. And there was a couple of dull terms where there were cousins and siblings and aunts all in uh, across the Oireachtas and a lot of people related. Um, There are still some people from political dynasties in the current uh, Oireachtas, but that seems to be on decline and there doesn't appear to be as many coming through in the pipeline in politics. Um, So my my question is really, is the era of dynasties over in Irish politics? And if it is, is that a good thing or not? In a way, this might require some work, which obviously we're not going to do. But in your perception, Harry, is Michael Wright or dynasties on the decline? Maybe a little, but they're not finished yet by any means. So there's always a debate uh, about this. I remember the first article I wrote about dynasties. I uh, consulted Tom Garvin, uh, the professor of politics in UCD, and he went through it in quite detail. And he basically said that, yes, it was a phenomenon. I mean, localism uh, and clientelism are are always big phenomena in terms of Irish politics. You have multi-seat constituencies. Uh, So you have uh, TDs from the same party and other parties vying with each other. He said name recognition has always been uh, a big factor in Irish politics. So you could see the de Valera name, uh, the Lamas name, uh, the Cosgrave name in in Fine Gael. And you can see it kind of uh, going from generation to generation. The Cowns, for example, Enda Kenny was a hereditary TD. Mm -hmm. His father, Henry Kenny, uh, was a TD back in the 1950s. Uh, the Hawhys, uh Lamas uh, dynasty, Sean Hawhey is still a TD. Uh, the Andrews dynasty, Barry Andrews and Chris Andrews are sons of TDs and their grandfather, of course, uh, was uh, Todd Andrews. So it's still there. It's probably not as evident now as it was. I think it will probably become less of a phenomenon, but I don't think it will disappear uh, entirely. I think the converse of the argument is that there are benefits to being the child of a politician because you kind of grow up in the family uh, business and uh, uh, kids who accompanied their parents out uh, canvassing. I did a piece with Charlie Flanagan uh, recently who was talking about retirement and he remembered the first time he went out canvassing with his father in County Leash in 1965. And they're almost like apprentices. They, mm-hmm. they, 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 they know the people called to the house. They know uh, what their parents uh, have done, how their parents view uh, society, how their parents view the, the local community, the kind of the views and the allegiances that their parents hold. They, 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 they tend to be inherited by the kids as well. well look at the Healy race. That's, that's happening. It's still happening. Absolutely. You, you'd, 
the late Jackie, you, Michael and Danny and the doll, you've got, I think, two or three councillors in Kerry at mm-hmm. the moment. You know, they, they've got a, a pipeline uh, into the future. Yeah, and, and there's a, in, in Hollywood, this phenomenon now of the, the Nepo kids or the Nepo babies who are kind of succeeding their parents as kind of stars. But the thing, one of the things that w- that's evident in terms of the Irish experience is that many of those who succeeded their parents as as politicians actually surpassed them. You know, I mean, Andy Kenny became Taoiseach. Maura Gagan-Quinn, who uh, succeeded her father, Johnny Gagan, uh, became a, a very for, strong for a long time, minister for justice. It was the only way that women got into Irish politics, wasn't it? It, it was, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, going back to the 1940s, 1950s. Yep, absolutely. Mary Coughlin inherited a seat from her uh, father, who had inherited her from her brother. Took it from the uncle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so... Yes. And if you look at our current government, Jen, Helen McEntee is the daughter of a TD. Simon Coveney is from a is from a dynasty. There two that immediately spring to mind. There's probably a few more knocking around at the junior ministerships that I can't think of right now. Yeah. Yeah, and I agree with Harry. I don't think that uh, dynasties are going anywhere yet. But the only thing I would say is that I think um, the crash obviously shattered people's trust in the political system. We saw the resulting kind of the end of that duopoly between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. And now Sinn Féin emerging as a credible, viable third candidate in a three-way race. Um, And I think that that feeds into people being less loyal to political parties, actually. And when you're less loyal to a political party, then, of course, I feel like that the the room for dynasties to flourish is severely curtailed. Um, And then, like we mentioned earlier on, this preponderance of independence, the fact that um, you know, at, a, at the last poll, they're polling around 20%, like I said in, in, in the previous podcast, um, shows you that people's, not only of their loyalty f- to the main parties uh, being questioned, but also that people perhaps, I- even if they're not ready to commit, let's say to Sinn Féin, that they will drift towards independence. So I think we're still feeling, uh, we will for a very what long the, time, their effects of Jen, the crash. I think Jen is absolutely right about yeah. this, that the, I think one of the, 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 the principal dynamic in the decline of the dynasties is this massive de-aligning event mm. that in politics that came as a result of the crash, and that is like the collapse of the of the the collapse of the big two basically, which dominated politics you know, for hundred years. The collapse of the big two is what has not like as the Healy rays would demonstrate that there is an advantage to dynasty politics in individual constituencies. Though I often think that it's best to think of the Healy Rays not so much as a political dynasty, but also as a almost as their own political localized political party. Uh, but but it is the the shattering of the assumption that political allegiances carry over mm-hmm. not just in candidacy but in voting from generation to generation. That has been the big yeah, and also the nature of the, of the job. Tennessee. I think the nature of the job has become yeah. a more difficult job. Yeah. Anyone, uh, and it's become as much a burden as it has become. That was uh, something a I was wondering about. Is it the the idea of handing on the family trade is a slightly old fashioned idea, which probably has less purchase in society at large than it does now. People feel they have more options, but but and they may look at their parents' jobs and say, "God." That looks like really hard work. Well, actually, I actually spoke to one retiring yeah. TD about um, this. I won't name him because I don't have his permission to do so. But um, I spoke to him about this and um, his father being a TD, he was a TD. And I asked him, you know, would any of you know his children be interested in being a TD? And he was like, are you out of your mind? Yeah, you know? not surprised. Not surprised. That's it's a broader question, isn't it? Is the job becoming job. more I mean, and look more at unattractive? The, yeah. 
the um, evidence is the wrong word. The four glasses now depriving me of my words. Um, First, you gave our secret away, and now it's you know, <laughs> now you come I might just no. Um, we had the kind of accounts of female politicians at the start of the year about um, the difficulties they have in their job. And I remember thinking before that we did the piece, oh, they, you know, they have a bad and they face a lot of abuse. And then I was really gobsmacked by what they said, you know, waking up in the morning, opening your door and seeing a bullet shell on the ground or having your family being followed, um, getting, you know, rape threats, death threats, um, having to stop your constituency clinics. And obviously it's not just women, male politicians are feeling it as well. And I think social media has played such a huge role in it becoming just a hugely hugely undesirable job not just because of the abuse that you get but because of the news cycle the news cycle is now 24 hours I mean I really miss the days and I started out working in a Sunday newspaper and I think of those days just with rose tinted glasses where you just file a few yarns on a Friday night and that's it but now it's it's the story that you have at two o'clock is gone and useless by five o'clock it's well what's happening at seven and then it's what's going to be and politicians feel that I think they feel I've, that. I've just realised, by the way, that the studio uh, full of journalists, maybe not you, Cormac, who started in the relaxed, genteel atmosphere of Sunday newspapers, well, now yeah, find themselves me also, me also, on the yeah. treadmill, the hamster wheel of of daily twenty four hours a day news websites. Pat, you have a, yeah, you have a wry smile on your face. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the, problem, well, the only problem with it, when I worked on a Sunday newspaper was that Thursdays and Fridays were hell. Because Monday and Tuesday were relevant, but you had each Tuesday and Wednesday were good though, weren't they? they were Tuesday and Wednesday were great. <laughs> but then you had all your stories hanging over you and then you had a big piece to write for Friday. So uh that was that was very, very difficult. And then but, one of the dailies would scoop you and you'd be like, Oh, I know. Fuck. I do remember the pain of that. You know, like you had something you're working on oh, and then it appears in one of the dailies on a Friday and you're back at square one. Yeah. Okay, enough of those nostalgic moments. Um, we have a question that almost relates a little bit, I, I think, to uh, to the previous question from David Garrahy. My question for the team is about Irish politicians showing a marked increase in their interest in jobs in the European Union. Many prominent TDs are considering running in June's European elections and prominent ministers such as Michael McGrath are being talked about as uh, candidates for the Irish commissionership. I Remember not so long ago that uh, a job in Europe was only for renegades or retirees of Irish politics. So I'm wondering what's changed? Wishing the team a very happy Christmas and all the best for an exciting election filled 2024. And happy Christmas to you, David. And we are also looking forward to an election filled 2024. Cormac. It may be related to this, might Is it nicer to be an MEP than a TD? Perhaps, but it's it's also a way of progressing your career if, you know, if it's had a bit of a stumble. I mean, you look at Fianna Fáil's candidates in, in uh, Midlands Northwest. Uh, Lisa Chambers lost her doll seat. Uh, she's a senator now. It's, it's possibly better to be an MEP. Uh, Barry Cowan was a, was a minister uh, at the very beginning of this government, but uh, but he was he was shortly sacked in, in a controversy over an old drink driving incident. So you know he he doesn't really have anywhere to go in the doll. It, a stint in Brussels is actually looks like a pretty good good prospect. But even if you, if you widen it out to the the commissioner job, you know the, people like Michael McGrath being being mentioned, you know. <laughs> A year and a half ago, he might have been mentioned as a, a leader of Fianna Fáil, but Michal Martin seems very, very, uh, you know, ensconced in that role at the moment, at least until after the election. So, you know, a commissioner job, that's a, that's a big job. It's a its a job that if you can't be leader of Fianna Fáil, well, it's is not, it a, it's not a bad ticket? consolation. Is it a one-way ticket? Has anybody ever come back? That's a good question. Uh, yes, uh, Pat Cope-Gallagher has come back. 
Mm. Michael O'Kennedy was a commissioner. Yeah, if I, he back. wants to go back again. He's, yep. he's, he's, uh, he's, um, a, he's a nomination. Back. Yeah, Matt Carty has come back. Simon Coveney came back. From the Parliament, yeah, mm. both from the Parliament. And he never come back from the Commission, Justo Kennedy, I think. Justo Kennedy, yeah. Um, but also, you can run in these elections and you can win the seats in Europe, but it doesn't mean you don't have to run in the doll in the next general election. You know, you, that's a seat for the party that they can they can hand over to somebody else if, if you win it, you know? Yeah, for many years it was a dual mandate, so you had TDs who were also MEPs. I, I absolutely boggles the mind as to how they managed to do that. That they'd be in Brussels and also. In I don't the think they did. Is the answer to that question? <laughs> they discovered the secret of bilocation. <laughs> I mean, the Parliament has much more power than it used to have. Uh, you know, it's still kind of out of sight, out of mind. Uh, I feel I saw an, an interesting piece by our Europe correspondent a few weeks ago, which is pointing out that our current crop of MEPs, very few of them proportionally speaking, are in the parties that actually make a difference in the parliament. They tend to be in the more peripheral parties, you know, and I wonder maybe do people in Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and indeed Labour, if they have a shot, which is probably a very long shot at, at a seat, mm. at least they'll be in, you know, they'll be in parties that actually, you know, carry weight in the parliament, in the next parliament as well. Yeah, and I actually, I did wonder whether this was part of Francis Fitzgerald's um, thinking, I suppose, around coming back and... and not running again, um, and whether it's funny because it, we're a country with the, one of the highest levels of satisfaction, you know, with being part of the European <laughs> with Union ourselves. and with ourselves and our wine. No, being part of the European Union and, and and with the EU in general. But I don't know. I feel like if you asked people what happened to the European Parliament last week, they you know, wouldn't have a clue. Not at all. No. And and it's interesting as well because the question is, and maybe I picked up the question wrong, which is very possible um, about. The role of people who are running now is is it viewed now as almost more of a golden ticket? If you look at the people who are running, like you mentioned, Labour there, Aon or Reardon, I'm not trying to be a cow here now, but what has he got to stay for? He's never realistically, he's probably not going to lead the Labour Party. Even if he did leave the Labour Party, they have serious, serious issues. Why not go to Europe? Why not? Um, it's the point that Cormac made. Perhaps it's actually more appealing than staying at home, whether you're a senator, whether you're a disaffected member, a, t- a TD, or whether you just fancy it to me, I mean, There was a time when, when if you wanted to escape from civilization, you basically became an MEP because you di- all traces <laughs> of you disappeared yeah. as far as everybody in and, Ireland and was Do you concerned. think that's not the case anymore? I don't think so. Not as much. I think the, the, the TDs or the MEPs have managed to, to they, they all have much higher profiles. I mean, if you look at that, I mean, Mick Wallace and Claire Daly have gone for a couple of years. They probably have gained the, the, the high profiles for the wrong reasons, mm. but they've maintained profiles as has Luke Flanagan. Most people would still know Luke Flanagan. I think the um, the other MEPs, Sean Kelly, has kept a very consistently high profile over the years. Carthy was very effective operator when he was over there. I think the two uh, Fianna Fáil MEPs in different ways, Barry Andrews and uh, Billy Kelleher, have also uh, been quite high profile and, and uh, quite effective. I think the Parliament is still a bit peripheral. It's more powerful, as you said, than it was, but it still isn't a, a power centre I mean, of it, European politics. No, it's not. It's, it's like, it's a lot more, it, like, constitutionally, as it were, yeah. it's a lot more important than it used to be, and it does have real power. Yeah. But the difficulty is, it just doesn't have the sort of proximity to voters that their national uh, parliament does. And the, the parliament of the you know, the three decision-making institutions, the Parliament, the Commission and the Council of Ministers, the Parliament is by far 
the least. Yeah, nationwide least. Yeah, it's kind of second or third division. But the point I'm making is that it's more relevant now than it was maybe 10 years ago. Sure. And I think it's, it's, it's if, if you become an MEP nowadays, you can make some change. I, you can't make much change, but you can definitely make more change than you would have maybe a decade or 15 years <sighs> I ago. Don't know, really, can you? you know, well, make change. What does that mean, Harry? Well, explain yourself. Make Harry, change. Make some change there, Harry. Change to what? Well, they're slightly more influential in terms. They, they do have slightly more sway in terms of the, like, for example. If Legislatively, they, they do. Yes. And, and, and appointments. I think they have a little bit more. True. But also, I think um, technology and social media has kind of helped them uh, maintain a higher right. profile. They, yeah. they, uh, they, so they, don't have to, they don't have to make decisions that change, but they can be quite influential in what they're saying. And I must say that Kieran Cuff and Grace O'Sullivan, the two Green uh, Party MEPs, have actually been quite effective. So they're, they're not changing the world or they're not making any decisions that are changing the course of direction in Europe. But they are... Uh, the, their voice is being heard. The Parliament may become and more I, important, though, after the next election. When, if predictions turn out to be correct, you could end up with a, a sort of a hung Parliament with a much larger far right element in it, uh, a kind of a, an ending of the kind of control which was exerted by the the, the two big centre right, centre left. We, 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 we talked about this. We talked about this. I think last week uh, here that you could have uh, a point in which the the two traditional big blocks of the European Parliament, the Socialists and the Christian Democrats, with the addition of the the half party, the Greens, now, all those combined may not have a majority in the next European Parliament. And if that happens, and if there is a majority of disruptors right across the political spectrum, then... The European Parliament Union is in a way to that face, it hasn't done previously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The European Union yeah. is going to face a massive challenge in terms of just functioning. Uh, and I think that's a, that is a real prospect. Can I, can I just throw one tiny little more crumb onto the uh, table? Uh, people in Ireland have always thought generally that, that Europe has been good without really knowing why it's been good, without looking beneath the bonnet. But one of the things uh, that I think is quite significant now is that there seems to be a rise in, in anti-European sentiment and that's been personified by Ursula von der Leyen. I think her, her statements on Israel since October the 7th uh, in, in, and subsequently we had a refusal uh, to, to condemn Israel has created a real problem with, with Irish people and you see that, that if you follow uh, um, the elements of social media that you can trust or listen to people they have a real problem with her and a real problem with the direction that's that Europe a, that, has taken that, in relation to that's Israel. That's definitely an interesting point and I think it's fair to say that it's fair to predict that there are going to be turbulent times ahead for European politics over the next 12 months or so. We have a, another question from Carl Mill. Carl asks and I quote, in the last general election Sinn Féin outperformed expectations including their own, very few voting for them, realistically expected them to lead a government post-election but at the next election they're expected to be the largest party and in poll position to lead a government. I appreciate there will be a multi of other variables between now and then but do the Irish Times political team think that how voters respond to this likelihood is given enough consideration by commentators? Should we in fact maybe see a Kinnock style turn off from Sinn Féin when it comes to the crunch, asks Carl. And I suppose that's a reference, Pat, to the, the moment the, the election in the early 1990s when Labour were predicted to win the election on the basis of all the opinion polls and then they didn't. And th- th- there was a sense in the aftermath of that that, that people had taken that victory too much for granted. Yeah, that was the 1992 uh, general election in the UK. I remember it 
quite well because I suppose party I was conference coming told to, them to prepare for victory, wasn't it? Eh, yeah. No, it wasn't party conference. I think it was a pre-election rally, yeah. maybe the night before the election or two nights before the election. I think it was in Sheffield. And Neil Kinnock, who was the Labour leader at the time, did this kind of toe-curling uh, performance where he kept saying we're all right we're all right and the watching British public went well we are but you I'm not sure are and uh, and there was this big turnaround on the day and John Major was a Tory leader who had taken over from Margaret Thatcher uh, in 1990 won that election now he won a narrow enough majority and I suspect it would have been better for the Tories to lose that election and uh, because they subsequent they lost the 1997 election so disastrously that they were out of power they were beaten by Tony Blair and they were out of power for 13 years. three elections yeah um, but so the anyway, question the, 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 the question Thank you for that, by the way. Which was, was the question? Which was some time ago. <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> and it was an interesting question. Um, I know there are some people in government that I speak to and they propagate this idea that, uh, you know, Sinn Féin has peaked. Uh, I'm not sure that is true. Maybe we'll find out over the course um, of, of the next 12 months. But I do think it is the case, and Hugh, you and I discussed this on the podcast that we did after Mary Lou McDonald's interview with us before Christmas. I do think that there things are going to get a little more difficult for Sinn Féin because I think they will have to explain what change means. And at the last election, they ran on this idea of change, which is, you know, the great political trope. But if you are somebody who is waiting to step into the Taoiseach's office, if you are presenting yourself as the government in waiting, then you will have to explain to that middle ground of voters who may be wavering, maybe looking at you, are interesting, but are wavering. You've got to explain to them what that change means. And I think if Sinn Féin doesn't do that convincingly, then there is that, there is a possibility of people falling away from them or support falling away from them at the, la- uh, at the last minute and coming back to their traditional homes. But I think that is very much actually, Hugh, that is what the debate before the next election will be all about. So Sinn Féin may be overreaching for the next election, Jen. You know, some people might, you know, look at the prospect of Sinn Féin in government and do a double take. Maybe. Um, I'm going to like count myself off Carl's Christmas list here because I don't agree with his, his, the premise of his question because, yes, so he says in the last general election, Sinn Féin outperformed expectations, including their own. Obviously true, didn't run enough candidates. We've been over that a million times. But then he said, very few people voting for them realistically expected them to leave a, lead a government post-election. I just don't agree with that. I don't see what the point is in voting for somebody if you don't think that they're going to... People voted with the intention of change. Like, that was very obvious in the last election. Um, however, the point remains that they did confound all their own expectations. Will people be turned off them in the end? I think it goes back to Pat's point about how Sinn Féin had this opportunity to explain exactly what their change would be. So they will have had, between the last election and the next, between four and five years, um, have they adequately explained, firstly, 
what their version of change is. But more importantly, have they convinced people that that change is the right change for them? The jury is out. That's all I'll say. Well, what we saw was we saw the enormous bump at the 2020 election and then we saw a further surge, Harry, in the in, in the year or so afterwards up to what is really their current position, which is in the low 30%, around 33 34% or thereabouts. And they've been steady at that point from ever since. I suppose one question is, could, could they go further or have they hit a ceiling? And is that their likely result at the next election? Um, they could go further. Um, they know. I mean, the, the 2024 or 2025 election, whenever it's going to be held, is not going to be the same as the 2020 election. The 2020 election uh, was sui generis. It was kind of one of, of uh, it was one of one of a kind. It turned a lot on the campaign. I think, the as Jennifer was saying, the predominant sentiment was one of change. And I think people want to change from Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. And when they looked around for an alternative, um, Sinn Féin, thanks to an amazing campaign by Mary Lou Macdonald. She was a f- formidable campaigner during that very, very short uh, period. When people voted for the likes of Louis O'Hara down in Galway, who they didn't know who he was, they were actually voting by proxy for Mary Lou. It was a, a Mary Lou uh, uh, victory first and a Sinn Féin victory secondly. The point I'm making is that when the next election happens, I think that people will be aware that Sinn Féin are gunning for government. I think that Sinn Féin, yes, wanted to be in government the last time. They didn't run enough candidates. They themselves didn't think that they would get into uh, government. But this time, they do think they can get into government. And everybody else thinks that they have a fair shot at getting in. And because of that, I think Sinn Féin uh, will be much more scrutinised. And also Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil will have a year and a half to prepare their strategy in relation to you know, uh, making people know from their perspective uh, what they think a Sinn Féin government uh, will look like. So that's one factor. I think Sinn Féin uh, might uh, fall a little as a result of that, but they could also make gains because uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have their own problems. Uh, Fine Gael has lost a raft mm-hmm. of candidates and not all of them are going to be replaced. We were talking about uh, the Tony Blair government uh, from 1997 to uh, 2010. I mean, Fine Gael have been in power now for 13 years, or coming up to 13 years, and that's a long innings for any government. Mm-hmm. And politics, and democratic politics, is a cyclical phenomenon. And I think that each government people tire, tire of them and there is a time where they must go to the opposition benches uh, in order to renew themselves, uh, to reform, to refresh themselves, to come back with a, with an initiative. And I think that Fine Gael are very near that kind of in, infraction uh, point uh, at the moment. And I think Fianna Fáil also have uh, problems. I think Fianna, Fianna Fáil has been on a slide uh, for, for almost a political generation now. I think the one thing that that prevents uh, Fianna Fáil from slipping into um, into irrelevance in in some senses is that they they Michal Martin who has been the the, the the one person who has kind of bolstered the party ironically enough because nobody gave him a hope yeah. uh, when he became Taoiseach in twenty twenty and he's been the one kind of person who has bolstered that party uh, and made sure that their problems big and all as they are are somewhat I less suppose, than those I, of Fine Gael. I, I suppose one of the things I think about that uh, I think that's a very good description of the situation. I know you want to come in uh, as well, Pat. Is that Cormac? I don't think it's very likely that Sinn Féin are going to put additional votes from from Fine Gael, for example. You know, but in the landscape 
of the different parties that we see across the opinion polls, you know, where it might be all to play for is Sinn Féin picking up party, picking up votes from the uh, PBP, the Socialist Party, maybe even the SOC Dems, depending how a campaign goes, because we know from the last election that the Irish electorate is much more volatile than it used to be, and a campaign can really matter. Or alternatively, the SOC Dems could turn around and pick up votes from soft, you know, Sinn Féin voters who don't like the look of a Sinn Féin government. I mean, the truth is probably that we just don't know. Isn't yeah, I mean, well, there's probably a good half a dozen or more politicians have left in, in Leinster House at the moment that would not be there if Sinn Féin had run more candidates, people from Social Democrats, Labour, possibly less from Labour, but people would be poor profit. And I think, you know, in terms of Sinn Féin's success in the election, they need it to happen now. They, they needed it to happen yesterday, really. There's only peril in this thing, in the government, the current government lasting longer for Sinn Féin. More houses get built, you know, probably not enough houses, but still more people who are suddenly happier than, with their lot in life than they were at this time. You know, we've, we've seen recent opinion polls and other publications so uh, Sinn Féin's support start to slip a little bit. Uh, and then there is, to get back to the original question, there is kind of the factor that we saw maybe in, in 2007, which was, you know, the, the very tail end of the boom, but still the boom was going on. Uh, Fine Gael very much thought they had a, they had a, ch- a shot in that election, but uh, the voters said, look, we're, we're, the, the good times are rolling. Fianna Fáil are in power. Why would we risk anyone else? Uh, the good times didn't roll for that much longer, but Fianna Fáil got their historic ter- third term. It's, it's, it's entirely possible we could see similar uh, similar decisions made by voters who might otherwise vote Sinn Féin. So we move on to a, oh, another, I like this question actually, it's from uh, Ian Fihiri. I'm just interested in what the panel think about who may be the runners and riders in the next presidential election, even at this extremely early stage. It's just under two years away, hopefully, but with Conor McGregor seemingly throwing his hat in the ring, who did the panel think has an actual chance? Senators? Retired Taoiseach? More of the dreaded dragons? Male or female? Politician or outsider? Just interested to hear your thoughts. Gurv Magi Vagas, Nolly Kuna. Jennifer. Yeah, Conor McGregor, like, it's such an interesting one because I'm, when we did our live podcast, he had only just, I think, tweeted or whatever about, you know, he was going to storm the doll and change the world and yada, yada, yada. Um, and subsequently, um, a number of politicians, a large number of politicians came out and said they wouldn't give him the um, signatures that he needs to run in the presidential uh, election. I still wouldn't rule him out. <laughs> it's like stranger things have happened. But he could, you know, but like honest to God, does he, Pat, does he have every the time I think something bad has happened, how does he get in? Explain to me how he gets in. One of the TDs gave a quote saying, I wouldn't trust him to wash the dishes. And I think that was hilarious. Um, what I would say is, okay, like a genuine, genuine answer to a genuine question. Who are the runners and riders? It really depresses me to say this, but I genuinely do think that Bertie Hearn will go for it. It also depresses me to say this, but I genuinely think Jerry Adams will go for it. But I also wouldn't rule out people like Mairead McGuinness, you know, um, who have... Andrew uh, Kenny? Yeah, maybe. Michael Martin? It's just... A, the reason why I'm depressed is because it would be lovely to have a candidate who maybe didn't have all that baggage. Hmm. Harry? I think Conor McGregor has, you know, I mean, in the past, I mean, Peter Casey became a presidential election candidate. OK, he, he wasn't as divisive a a candidate as as Conor McGregor was before he started, but he became quite divisive during the course of the during the course of the campaign. I, I mean, suppose the need, questions are who are candidates as opposed to who's going to win. Yeah, so, you need, yeah, you need yeah. I mean, essentially, I mean, uh, you need the backing of four local authorities, as far as I can recall. 
And yes. sometimes the four local authorities will give back, not because they support the candidacy of the person, uh, but because uh, they think the person should be given a fair chance. I think maybe Conor McGregor might be a little bit too controversial, but I wouldn't rule out a pathway to him uh, completely. I don't think he's going to run. I think he just likes to say things for, for effect. Uh, when I think of candidates, I think the only... I, I don't think Bertie Hearn is going to run. I think when you're running, you're going... I mean, you have to be prepared for uh, bruising of unimaginable proportions. There hasn't been a presidential election campaign since 2007 where the candidates haven't been savaged yeah. by the media and by everybody, their opponents. Everybody will be listening again to Pat's, Pat's uh, extemporising of, of the, the political career of Bertie Hearn. Be good for us. Be good for the podcast. Well, Pat, but, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've been a student of the Berts, uh, you know, um, a Bertologist for, for many years. A, uh, He's an anorak, a Bertie anorak. A, a student of Bertology. Bertorak. Um I don't think he will run because I think his political judgment is still sufficiently acute that he will know that a presidential campaign would be a Brutal, brutal experience for him. I think he has been in the year just past with the acknowledgements and celebrations of the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. I think he has been somewhat rehabilitated in, in the public mind to the extent that I think the appreciation of his legacy is now a more balanced one, I think, which may have been his intention uh, all along. I suspect he's possibly enjoying the speculation about him running for president, but I am sure that it would be a horrible experience for him. I think he would be unlikely to win it. And I, I think that he probably realizes that. So, so who are the I, runners and riders? Do but you there think? Aren't, I mean, there aren't any runners and riders, and there never are until you get uh, a, a lot closer to it. What is true is that even though there's a party politician of some years standing in the position at the moment, that it's becoming harder and harder for party politicians uh, to win it. And to that extent, I would say that it. It is a wide open field. I I fail to see a route to a nomination for somebody like Conor McGregor because I think that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael politicians on every local authority would seek to block it and politicians of the left would also seek to block it. And I don't see how he gets past that anti-McGregor coalition to get in the race. Yeah. Um, beyond that, I wouldn't be surprised to see Murray McGuinness get in get in the ring. You'll probably have a Fianna Fowler get what in the ring. What about non-political figures? People have talked in the past about media figures like uh, Miriam O'Callaghan. Ryan Tuberty was Hugh mentioned. Linehan. Seems like a long shot now. Hugh Linehan. Yeah, well, well, we're all know, talking about a Hugh Linehan. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the country is... I'm just waiting for the call. Well, right. give yeah. the incumbent yeah. a run for yeah. the money in terms <laughs> of... Uh, <laughs> Intellectual prowess. Well, yeah. I wish that were true. Long yeah, kind of you to say, although I well, know it's a tongue-in-cheek. Um, <laughs> and thank you for and thank you for that. Settle down, everybody.
everybody now. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to think of who are real candidates. And also, the thing has got much more pop culture as the years have gone by. Yeah, you know, there's a since basic the years amount of, Mary of political nous and constitutional knowledge acquired. Right? But also, Conor McGregor, I think, has a fundamental misunderstanding of the power of a president. If you look at yeah. his tweets, it's like, I'm going to do this and that, and we're going to change the whole thing. Well, I think, I think Pat the has already be disposed gone. Like, of, I think it's most unlikely that, I know, that I he has a route to nomination and he's even less mm. likely to collect it. But I'm just looking at this, frankly, I'm looking at this bunch of Bertie and uh, Mihal, kind of superannuated politicians. Is that what the country wants now? You know, is there not an, is there not an opening there for somebody? And the other point might be that, you know, I think it's broadly accepted that the political trend of the country is kind of centre lefty right now. And in a way, Michael D Higgins, in all his extraordinary Michael D Higgins'sness, uh, he mm. sort of reflects that. So I guess there's yeah. kind of an opening there. of Michael D Higgins. Michael D Higgins. Yeah. But you know what, actually, and this is t- uh, totally unrealistic and um, it makes no sense, but... Um, here it comes. W- here, here it comes. Here we go. Uh, Mary Robinson, like in the last week or two, she speaks nothing but sense, I think, on what's happening in the Middle East. I don't know. She wouldn't want it though, would she? I don't think she would ever... No, I don't think that she would, but, you know, if you're talking... What do people want? You want a credible president. You want someone who you're proud to say is the president of Ireland, who when they travel abroad, you say, that's our president. Um, what the government wants is a president who doesn't do a Michael D. Higgins on it and continuously oh, In some respects, the political heir to yeah. Mary Robinson is Vanabachik in a way, isn't she? Actually, that's such a good show. Yeah. Well, I wonder. I also wonder whether not the last. She has pre- all the credentials. Not the last you know. presidential election, but the one before. We, we almost elected a sort of an unknown. Uh, it really just avoided that with a weird swerve at the last moment. Are so you talking about Sean Gallagher? Sean Gallagher. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so the, you know, anything is possible. Yeah, but like that was such a specific thing. Like the debate that happened in Orti, you know, when they had that debate, I remember watching it and mm. this thing was like brown envelope was the phrase that was used. No, the and then they read he, out the fake tweet. I mean, it was extraordinary. Was, but the fact extraordinary. that he almost got there from yeah. a position of real near anonymity, you know, yeah, shows it, it, what's it, possible. It, it, it was, it was, a good was media also former. an extraordinarily unsettled and volatile time in Irish politics. If you think your way back to it, it's in late 2011. You're in the depths of, you know, a massive recession. Fianna Fáil didn't have a candidate. Yeah. Yeah, but he was going to get the Fianna Fáil vote. But that was the time when Fianna Fáil got a lot more votes than it does now, I suspect. Okay, we have a question which sort of relates to some things that you've just been talking about here, Pat. Hello, my name is Evan Byrne. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I'm also a big fan of the Rest is History podcast. And so I have to ask, was Pat Leahy's impressions in the Ahern years, which was a great series, and I'd love you to do more of that sort of thing, was that inspired by the impressions they do on the Rest is History, which is indeed a very influential podcast? And what will the next big series that deep dives in an area of Irish political history be on? Thanks very much. Looking forward to hearing more from you guys next year. Pat. Is that where you found your inspiration? <laughs> um, I do listen to uh, the rest of history. It's very good. Uh, you, of course, interviewed. I did the, indeed. Uh, the two, the two historians themselves, Dominic yeah. and Tom. Excellent chaps. Uh, yeah, I think it's very good. Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that they were the inspiration for my. The joy of their impressions is they they take great pleasure in how bad their impressions are. Which is obviously clearly different to mine. Yes, it, very uh, different. Yeah. Hugh, um, but I, I, I will say that uh, we we did have uh, another um, series 
plans. Should we reveal what, what we were talking about? What do you think? Is that a good idea? Uh, yeah. Should we lift the Hello? curtain? Declan's raising his eyebrows, but also raising his hand. So oh, I think, yeah, I think Sorry, Declan, we, we were talking. We were talking about doing Charlie versus Garrett. Uh, we were, and yeah. uh, but um, obviously, Hugh, you and I had all our work done for it. But Declan wasn't quite yeah. ready to go before <laughs> yeah. Christmas. So, as usual, uh, so hopefully, as he would yeah. get his shit together yeah. in the new year, and we would be able to 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 do it then. That's his if we haven't forgotten all the preparation that we had. That's uh, a great done, idea. Which is quite possible. Love but, that. You know. It may feature impressions of Charlie High, but it won't do so now, so we don't want to get people too excited. Do you do any other impressions? Mary Lou MacDonald, anybody like that? I mean, I interviewed Mary Lou MacDonald before Christmas and she did ask uh, myself and Declan if uh, I was going to do an impression of her. And the answer to that, of course, is a firm no. <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> and that gives us only time for one more question, if we can even manage it. So we had a number of questions in on people's social media feeds. You got some interesting ones, Jen, and I was particularly taken by one which was asking, what was the best hairdo in Irish politics? <laughs> you really landed this in on me. I didn't think you were going to ask well, that of all the questions. Because people have remarked on the on the importance of extravagant hairdos in contemporary politics around the world. Hairdos. Donald Trump Geert Wilders, you know, there's a lot of these people. Your man mm. in Argentina. Donald you know? Trump is less hairdo, more like dead animal I think situation. Th- but there's but an okay. absence of flamboyant hairdos in Irish politics, I think. I guess, it may yeah. connect to yeah, the so absence of a far-right party. Yeah, I put this on my Instagram stories, Jennifer Bray Insta, in case anybody's wondering. Trying to yeah. drive that younger uh, subscribers to the Irish Times. Have you got a TikTok handle? Oh, I can't figure it out. I'll figure it out in the new okay. year. But um, uh, yeah, one of the questions that came in was, who has the best hairdo? Um... And I really genuinely didn't think you were going to ask this. So now I'm on the spot. I actually really like Louise O'Reilly's hair. It's long hair, luscious long hair. I'm all for it. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. I'm going to pass it on to the lads. Cormac? I'm not stupid enough to to make a comment about any woman's hairdo. I will say I interviewed Dara O'Brien pre-Christmas and it, it oh, yeah. was manicured. It's good. It's good <laughs> manicured hair. Manicured like you know? a lawn. Uh, I, I, I'm, I was mildly envious. Pat, there was a time of great, and in fact, we just mentioned that era. There was a time of great hairdos in Irish politics. There was a time when men had pieces of hair that were maybe two feet long that they plastered every day over the top of their head to, in a in a really strange effort to pretend that they weren't bald. Where are those hair? Where are those hair, hairdos gone? Who is the Donny Cassidy de nos jours? Indeed. Uh, yeah, is hair important for politicians? I think the I think the answer is yes. You only need to look around the world. Possibly. Yes. With the probably more Argentina. important. Probably more, more important for women politicians because they get scrutinised more on their looks, and um, that is obviously all I'm going to say about that. Um, I can't believe you're being so cautious in the final question of the of night. But the uh, all of the women in Leinster House, I think, have wonderful hairdos. Some of the men, less so. Listen on that deeply disappointing note we are going to leave it for for this year's Ask Me Anything thank you so much to Jen and to Cormac and to Pat and to Harry who isn't with us but he's left us but he'll be back at some point thanks to everybody for providing the libations we had cheese we had nice prosciutto we had different glasses of wine and we will leave it there before we give away any further uh, indiscretions Um, it only remains for me to thank our producer for the entire year Declan Conlon and our engineer for the entire year JJ Vernon and to wish you all a very happy new year we will see you in 2024 and we all look forward to it